Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do I get a .gov domain? Always wanted to know that question. And I'll hopefully get an answer today because I am on today with Joe Castle. Joe is joining us. He is joining us for the second time because you may remember Joe was already on the podcast during the Fosse series of podcasts where I recorded lots of little podcasts at the free and open source software yearly conference aspirationally named in Portland, Oregon last July. Now, I'm your solo host today, Richard Littauer. Hi, everyone. And it's really great to be here. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Richard. Good to see you again or good to hear from you again. It's good to see you, too. Really excited to talk to you today because I feel like the last time we didn't have a long enough conversation that we didn't get to cover all the things we wanted to talk about. So just as a quick refresher, your name is Joe. Check. Got that. You work at SAS, which is a software analytics type company, software company that based out of North Carolina, but does a lot of work with DC. Maybe you could actually give the elevator pitch better than I can. So why don't you? Yes, for sure. So SAS Institute based out of North Carolina, uh, all around the world, almost 13,000 employees. And we focus on analytics and AI, software and services, mostly software have a large presence in the federal government, actually started over 40 years ago. And the first contract was with the Department of Agriculture. So our roots are in federal U.S. federal government, but uh, work with governments around the world, various banking institutions, industry, et cetera, right? If, if you can think of a company out there or a government agency out there, we probably have at least spoken to them and may have a presence there as well. Roots in big ag, but extended beyond that. You're the executive advisor of strategic partnerships and technology. Now, Joe, open source isn't mentioned in that role. Do you do open source? That is true. It's not. It used to be. I updated to a broader technology term. So my background is in software development, largely in or started in front end development, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, website stuff about 20 years ago or so. Remembering open source. Uh, Actually, my first uh, exposure to it was one of my colleagues. We were on a government contract. We were working for a small firm in DC and brought in a a laptop that had Linux on it. And it was like the first of its kind, right? There were plenty out in the wild, but for us, it was the first we had seen. And we're like, how are you going to use this thing? What is this thing? Where's the interface? What's going on here? (laughs) Yeah. But fast forward from that in the past 10 years or so, a little bit less, maybe eight years. Mostly I was working on a PhD dissertation. My research was on open source software. I was doing some development for a platform called code.gov, which is, we're going to talk about it, but the US federal government's destination for open source software. And in my research as well, I was learning Python and using various APIs and using open source software to help me do my dissertation. So became more of an advocate for open source both for me personally to use, but also in the government and commercial space, promoting code.gov. Excellent. Cool. Okay. So that's how you sort of came into the open source (laughs) world. And now you're working to turn SaaS as a company towards open source. You and Ruth is still there, right? Ruth Sile, Sile, Sile. Yep. Yep. Ruth is still there. Thank you. She leads up Um, our open source program office. Yeah. So with SaaS, what's interesting is in my role is that a lot of it is this development related, which makes sense. I, I've over 20, 20 years in federal service, U.S. federal service, military and, and civilian. And with SAS, where we're headed is more towards open source integration. So an open platform 
a lot of individuals nowadays. So we have a SaaS programming language is kind of how, how we started. And then now we have this interface and a whole platform for analytics. And some of the platform you can see, there's a visual component to it and you can do point and click and all that stuff. And it's basically, when I say advanced analytics, we're talking about it's math, right? It's serious math, right? <laughs> like it's descriptive statistics yeah. all the way to various algorithms for machine learning, all the way to like visualization and, and graphing and charting and all that stuff. What you don't recognize with SAS or what most people don't see is if you apply for a bank loan or a credit card and you receive results within seconds, a lot of times that's our software running in the background to do that decisioning to get you to hey, you're cool. qualified for this much, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not an interface that's more hooking into APIs and using our, our software that way. So from an open source perspective, kind of going back to that, is a lot of folks, especially coming out of college and what have you, or even in industry, Python is huge. It continues to grow. From an academic perspective, R is very popular. And SAS, the language, more of a data manipulation language, like a SQL is not being taught, is not being learned as much. And so a lot of folks come to us and say, and me too, right? Like I come from a Python background based on my research and the things I was doing for code.gov and others. And it was all open source. It was Python. And a lot of folks are coming and saying, we don't know SaaS. We don't want to learn SaaS. What do we do, you know, with your product? How do we use your product? How do we leverage the mass compute engine, multi-parallel processing, things like that? And so we said, perfect. We have APIs. We have various open source packages you can use and all that good stuff. So that's partly why I'm here. Part of it is the business development and then part of it's the education internally and externally on open source software and how you can integrate that with SaaS itself. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for that context. It's really useful to know how you sort of position yourself now as someone who deals with a very large company that has tons of people who are interested in working with you on things collectively, and you try to figure out how to make that available to them and how to have other people get up to speed on, say, an obscure language. Now, I do want to get back to yes. the thing that you into that, which is code.gov. Code.gov is, as far as I know, a website. If you go to the website, it says, this is an official website of the United States government and has a little tiny emoji flag, which is delicious, which only has nine stars on it. So I think they just kicked out the other 41 states in the union. But that's fine. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about the history of code.gov? Small screen space for that little, <laughs> little emoji flag. I know, I know. <laughs> I was going to say real fast, Ruth Seeley, we brought her up. She has come on from Red Hat to stand up our open source program office as well. So we're getting pretty serious about open source software. And uh, Ruth is a great advocate, great person. She's out on the speaking circuit from time to time as well. So code.gov was born basically out of the U.S. federal source code policy. So the way government works, the way the U.S. government works is that there's 24 major agencies, right? The State Department, Justice Department, et cetera, et cetera, right? And basically what happens is the executive office of the president, office of management and budget, which is one office within the EOP at the White House, issues policy for agencies to follow. And there's a U.S. CIO who is appointed by the president. That office does IT policy. It's very convoluted. <laughs> but basically, they do IT policy that federal agencies have to follow. It's directed at federal CIOs, chief information officers. So every agency has a CIO now directed at a CIO. The federal source code policy came out in 2016, and it basically told federal agencies to do three things. The first was to create their own source code policy to account for their source code internally, how they capture it, what it does, where it is, all that good stuff. And think of this in terms of 
That sounds pretty simple, but think of this in terms of scale. The size of the federal IT budget in today's dollars is about $68 billion, a billion with a B. That's just the IT budget. That's not the agency budget. That's the whole, you take 24 agencies, $68 billion. And so an organization like the Veterans Affairs could have, I don't have it in front of me, but they could have a $10 billion budget. Just their CIO has a $10 billion budget. And so there's a lot of software out there everywhere. About 7% of that IT budget is for software. And so agencies have software all over the place and they, they probably can't even find it to share it with each other, much less publish it as well. So basically this, the source code policy came out and said, account for your software, figure out where it is, whether it's open source or, or not, just account for your software, right? Create an inventory. Well, first create a, a policy. Then update acquisition language to capture the code. So whether it's built internally by a federal employee or a contractor, basically capture that code as government code. Because what will happen is vendors will go on contract to the government. They will create something for the government, but it, the vendor holds the rights to the code and they'll sell it multiple times over to the government, multiple agencies, even to the same agency, like different bureaus within an agency and things like that. Very inefficient for the government, right? Very costly. So it's create a policy, update acquisition language. And then the third part was create an inventory of your source code, publish that inventory on code.gov, but also publish at least 20% of your software as open source software. And so where code.gov comes in is to capture that inventory and capture the open source software as well. Right. Okay. That's a lot. I have some questions. <laughs> that is a lot. <laughs> Sorry. No, it, no, it's really I cool. I don't make this it's, stuff up. I just... <laughs> no, it's really cool. So there's 24 right. agencies and there's one CIO in the OMB who is basically the Uber CIO. And then there's CIOs in each of those agencies who are responsible right. for the $68 billion that collectively go towards software, which means $4.7 billion is going to go towards software, of which most of that is going to be contracts. Yeah. But what you're saying here is that 20% of all the software that's coming out of all of the agencies, not just the OMB, not just the main CIO. And again, that's Office of Management and Budget. I only know that because I've watched West Wing way too much. 20% of that now should be open source. Now, does that mean 20% of the software which is made by the federal government or 20% which is produced by the federal government? Made by the federal government. I want to go back to your numbers real fast because I want to make sure we're Great. clear on, on the numbers. <laughs> so last year, 2023, actually this year, 2023, the federal IT budget. So this is the 24 agencies combined. The federal IT budget was $68 billion. Yes. $68 billion. Of that, about 7% is spent on software. So that could be they're, they're buying software, they're building software. We don't really know how that breaks down. They're not transparent enough for us to figure that Which out. Which is $4.7 That's 7% of 68. Okay. So Perfect. Cool. Okay. We're good. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure our numbers really interesting. are interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Um, That's all I was getting to, really. It's like the magnitude of that. I mean, that IT budget alone is larger probably than most businesses in the world or something. Like the scale of this is massive. It's very large. It's unfortunately probably not as large as Amazon or Apple mm. or the like, thanks to the a corporate hegemonic state. <laughs> but yeah, that's how that goes. What does the other 93% of the budget go towards? It can be labor, infrastructure, commodity IT, things like things even just as basic as, as machines, right? Like machines in terms of like laptops and desktops and anything that's IT related. The Department of Defense alone 
they have a really tough time categorizing software from other types of IT because they have software everywhere. I actually worked at the White House for a period of time working on open data initiatives, a different thing, kind of a sister thing that we might talk about later. But they had a hard time. They're like, do you want the software that's on the F-18 or do you want the like the software that we're creating for business workflows that is more towards the public side, things that people would actually use? And I was like, that's a really good point. Like at some point you have to make a determination of what software and then you know, what can be published as well. So it's hard to tell sometimes, like, what is that other 93% infrastructure, labor, the government contracts out. Uh, I was looking at something the other day, the government workforce, actual federal employees of the government workforce is only about 20%. So the other 80% of the federal workforce is mostly contractors. There's also academic grants and things that go to academic institutions and other places. But yeah, so there's a lot of money going to a lot of other things that's not software. Interesting. So earlier you said that each CIO is responsible for publishing a list of all the software that they use on code.gov. So this is the one place where you should be able to see for every single agency in the federal government, what code is being used by that agency anywhere within that agency, which I guess includes the F-18s. Is that accurate? Because that seems like a security risk. Yeah, it depends. It depends on what CIOs put on the list. They can't exclude things for certain reasons. One of them is national security or or security in general. So probably not. You probably wouldn't find the F-18 or (laughs) you might be able to find like the Hubble telescope with NASA or something, but you're not going to find it. It just varies, right? Each CIO can make their own determination. Well, NASA is a really awesome open source department, so they're really good at working on this sort of stuff because generally they want people to work. Astronomy is one of the best cases of where open data has been really, really useful to the field as a whole. F-18s have been traditionally less crowdsourced. <laughs> so, you know, it's well, less, less of them, right? <laughs> like, like, and yeah. less of them. Yeah, I don't know. Are you building an F-18? Have you built an F-18 lately? <laughs> we probably don't need that software. <laughs> this part of the conversation was redacted. Right. So... One question I have, which is, you mentioned that certain CIOs can basically obfuscate dependencies for security. So on code.gov, is there some massive manifest that I can look at that tells me about all of the open source packages? Or has it all been basically thrown away because we don't want to let people know what the federal government is using? Like, what percentage of the code that is open source do you think the government has on code.gov? Yeah. So on code.gov, what you'll see is you'll see agency inventories of their source code that they can find. What's interesting, kind of thinking more in the meta, right? It's like um, the confusion of the way I explain, like even how the federal government works and the way the policy works with the multiple CIOs and the scale of the budget sort of speaks to the whole, like when we were talking about the 93%, part of the reason why I'm here is I've always been on this, like it's a public good. It needs to be released government needs to be more transparent. We can't even account for all the software in government. So all this money is being spent. Yep. We don't even know where it's going. <laughs> and that's part of the reason why I'm here. It's like, that's a problem. That's a problem. I, mean, I don't know about other folks. I can't speak for them, but citizens in general, we pay a lot of taxes and where's the return? And this is one place where it's something tangible that we could actually see if it was actually public content software got out there. So this is sort of speaking to the whole reason why I wanted to come back actually and have this discussion because <laughs> I feel like this is my life's work is to get <laughs> get more transparency to government to get some of this content out there. And code is something I'm familiar with, obviously. So it works that way. I appreciate that. I'm also really curious. No, it's a really good point. And just to be clear, code.gov is a federal project. 
So that's not even including all the state stuff or all the municipal right. stuff or all the county stuff, which is exactly. a huge other part. And also, for those of you who are listening who have other passports, this is just for America, but I'm sure there's going to be some sort of relative thing going on in your country as well. We recently had the CTO of Munich on really fascinating conversation about how they do things in Germany. Super, super cool. But here we're talking about American dollars and American things. So earlier right. I'd asked you a question and I hadn't really gotten an answer for it yet. So I'm going to ask it again. How did you get involved with code.gov? Yeah. So the way I came around to being involved is I had mentioned this. I went to the White House in a little data now, 2013 to 14. I was on a rotational assignment. I was in the U.S. General Services Administration, which is largely responsible for federal buildings, federal vehicles or, or fleet of vehicles, acquisition across the government, contracts, things like that. Took an assignment at the White House, worked in the U.S. CIO's office and worked on open data policy. Returned to General Services Administration, working for the chief technology officer and the federal source code policy came out reached out to some folks that worked on that at the same office, the USCIO office at OMB, where I had worked and said, hey, this is awesome. I'm the lead for GSA. Every agency had a lead and I was the lead for GSA for implementation of the policy within your own agency. And uh, I volunteered to take it and then reached out to them and said, hey, we should team up, come use our conference space. Let's go speak about this at different conferences, put together a panel for OSCON back in the day, back in Austin, went and spoke about it all that good stuff. Fast forward about a year or two, person I was working with at OMB, Alvin Salehi, who was running the effort, he reached out to me and said, hey, the person that's running this is a presidential innovation fellow. They're on a term appointment. They're going to leave government. And will you run this for us? This is code.gov. So it's the policy implementation with the platform. And Did you like, just say Senator Leahy? No, Alvin Salehi. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. Sorry, I was very confused why the Vermont <laughs> Sadler was involved. Keep going. Yeah, no, Alvin Salehi is the person's name that was at, at, at my old office at the White House who I had sort of partnered up. So he offered me the job. Thank you. And it was at GSA, and I was already at GSA, General Services Ministry. I was already there, so I just had to move, like, course, I had to go like down one floor, <laughs> in essence, and join a Sorry. new office. And I'm like, this is awesome. I would love to lead. So it's basically running code.gov beyond it's the platform and the API and it's the policy, the federal source code policy, but it's basically holistically, it's a program office. So it's an open source program office for the U.S. federal government. So I was like, sure, I will definitely love to run that. That would be awesome <laughs> to try. And the whole goal was to implement, basically implement the policy, right? Get agencies. So you're championing, you're educating, you're working the platform, trying to make that better so the public has access to source code that we put out, we would curate projects, we would run hackathons, all, all this stuff. So it, it was a great, great job. But that's basically how I, how I came into it. I volunteered a lot and was in this area, had worked at the White And then they were like, hey, you didn't volunteer for this one, but we'd love to have you. And I was like, awesome. We'd love to do it. So as part of the OSPO for the US government, to use your term, you were in charge of the $68 billion of money that goes towards all IP that's software related, right? Like how large was your budget? Clearly, it was no, no, oh. no, 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 no. So the sixty-eight billion is the full IT budget. So that's between the White House and the agencies. And how Congress. much is allocated for code.gov? Right. Code.gov at, at its heyday was about a million dollars a year. That paid for our platform and it paid for our people. We had about ten people at its heyday as well. Mostly contractor staff. There were a couple of feds on there as well. Federal employees, right? And so that's a different pool of money. And then. 
promotional travel and promotional materials and things, you know, the hackathons and things I mentioned, we'd go to different conferences and speak about it. And all that was within that million dollars. You mentioned an interesting word at its heyday. I guess that's a phrase. Can you tell me about the rise and fall of code.gov? How has it changed over the years? Yeah. So that was another reason to come on as well or to do this again. Cause last time we talked a lot about SaaS and proprietary and open source software. And I said, Hey, we didn't get to code.gov or open source software. But so basically there was this arc. So started in 2016, 2019, the open source, the 20% open source portion of the policy went away. So it was called a pilot when they started it. I worked with OMB to uh, try and get new policy written, make agencies default to open. So they'd have to justify why they couldn't open all of their software. Then that was pushed back to 20%. Then nothing was ever published. So basically at this point, there's still a policy, but agencies don't have to do open source software. What ended up happening is we transitioned from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Obama started it. The Trump administration carried it on, saw value in it. But other priorities came to light, mostly probably focused on cyber initiatives and other things. So our funding sort of dried out. The value wasn't there in some sense, or we couldn't explain the value well, and and others didn't want to carry that forward for whatever reasons. It happens all the time in government. Policies come, policies go. They're still technically in effect, but they're not the hot priority of a CIO necessarily, which is unfortunate. So basically the program, we lost our funding. We downsized. The website is still there. It's very dated. If anyone maintains, it's probably more from a, I saw there was like a GitHub pull request recently and it was more just a policy update. Oh, we need to put like policy disclaimer about privacy or something on the site. And so they'll do it to be conforming to another policy, but they're not actually doing anything with the site itself and the code, which is unfortunate. And I've also just real fast, I've also had folks reach out to me from other who are still in, I'm not in government anymore, but who are still in government or have come back. I have a good friend at Department of Homeland Security who ran defense.mil, which was a sort of a sister site to code.gov. They were doing the same thing, kind of modeled after us for the defense department. And he said, hey, we would love to update our inventory. And I'm like, you can send in a pull request, but my guess is there, there's no one. Has. It's sort of like the lights on, but no one's home and nothing happened. They can't seem to get any updates. So it's really dated at this point, unfortunately. Is the CIO for OMB, who seems to be the person who's really in charge of these sorts of policies, is that a federally appointed position? Yeah. And so the CIO has changed. And even in the Biden administration now, there's a new federal CIO. And the question is, where, what do you focus on? Right. Because there, there's enough IT topics. We talk about scale. There's enough things to focus on. CIOs are pulled in multiple directions multiple policies. And sometimes what the US CIO will do is come out with a new memo or a new policy, if you will, that says all of these policies to this date are no longer in effect, but now we have these or something. And that hasn't happened. So technically, it's still in effect. We don't have the open source portion, but agencies are still supposed to follow it, but nobody's checking up on it because they've all been pulled in different directions as well. right? And there's no real funding. There's no way to hire anyone to actually do it. I think it's unfortunate as well. So if the CIO is federally appointed and if priorities do change and they do shift and we end up in the situation now where sort of Kotlikov was a great initiative, but it's just not really there at the moment. How do we change that? Should we collectively canvas the CIO? Should we email and be like, yo, what's up with code.gov? Should we all submit a thousand PRs to like the GitHub and be like, we want this to come back. Please make it come back, merge. What do we do? 
Yeah, do all of that. <laughs> cool. <laughs> that would be awesome. Actually, what's interesting, and you and I talked about this briefly before we got on the air, but what's interesting is that out of nowhere one day, so working at SAS, been here over, a little bit over a year now, and received an email from someone on the Hill, a staffer on the Hill. And this was like in my personal email, which is totally random. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I want to meet with you. Part of this committee, it's a Senate committee for technology and science and something else. I can't remember the exact name, but basically a Senate committee and a staffer. And I uh, want to meet with you. Saw your research on code.gov or the federal source code policy. My dissertation research is on it. I did a study, kind of repurposed that for a federal source code study. Have written various blog posts, been interviewed for trade rags within the Beltway, the, the Washington DC Beltway, all that stuff. So anyway, reach out to me. And uh, he said, I'd like to talk about this. So I went and met with him. And it's one of possibly a thing that could become law, but it, it takes forever to navigate that on the Hill. And so the chances are probably slim to none, but I would love to see that happen. But if there's some way that we could get attention, and I feel like this is sort of like a, like an easy win in some sense, because we did the exact same thing with data. So we had a thing called data.gov. We had a policy. We had a, a website. It's still there, still data on it called data.gov. That went into law called the Data Act, which basically directs agencies to publish open data as well to data.gov. So it's like, it's already been done. The model is there. I think the problem we've run into a little bit with code is that it's sort of a niche thing, right? Unless you're a technologist, you don't really understand the value of code. Maybe not even the value, just even what it is. Kind of a tangent, but I met with um, someone that used to run the General Services Administration. We had lunch together one day. He was a mentor for a while. And and he said, what are you working on? I said, code.gov. And he said, oh, what is that? Like code, like like law, like US federal code? And I was like, oh, no, it's like... And this is a senior level, you know, this is a political appointment, senior level person. So it's like, I realized right there that I had somewhat failed in my job, right? Like if folks like him don't understand, then we're not getting this to law. We're not getting the new policy. We're not... Because those are the people that that need to understand. So how do you fix that? Back to your question is, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's really trying to get those people that run the things now and get their attention, right? Like, how do you get their attention to get them to say, this is actually kind of an important thing. And I honestly think it's kind of an easy thing. Like, it's to account for the code, publish it, right? The open source portion of it gets a little more difficult for federal agencies. And we can talk about that. But yeah, I think it's more just champion. I keep doing it. It's what, 2016? Now we're in almost 24 and I, I'm still talking about it eight years later. <laughs> and I'm not going to stop talking about it <laughs> as long as people keep asking. <laughs> no, that makes sense. It is difficult to continually keep this front of mind and front of center for things. For political appointees, people who come into a revolving door administration, it's always hard. And we also see a problem a lot of the times, which doesn't seem to be in the case for code.gov, where governments that have an open source policy by contracts or open source things, the next administration doesn't like it, says we can't do that ever again and switches back to something else. And so it doesn't seem like that was the case here, which is great. It's more just a policy. Hey, we want to open source stuff. And now the pitch to future members of the government is just, we should keep doing that. It's useful, it's transparent, and it helps us cut down on the amount of code that we spend money on five times. So that seems really clear to me. Do you know of any efforts going on internally that are similar to code.gov with tracking, say, multiple contracts for the same vendors, which could easily be 
say, a key towards having this start again. Because right now, there's 24 departments. Government doesn't know what to spend money on. It's the same thing in, in business, by the way. Like, most of Google doesn't know what the other half of Google is doing, <laughs> right? right? It's, it's just too big. Like, what do you do? I mean, so I'm just curious that, if you know of true. any efforts like that that have sort of replaced some of the things that Code.gov was trying to do. I don't know about the efforts internally from like an acquisition standpoint. I will tell you that and it's still happening. Uh, there are certain organizations and I'll, and I'll tell you which ones in a second, but like there's organizations that had reached out to us as we were doing code.com. So I talked about defense.mil. Defense.mil, from what I understand, I haven't talked to the folks there, but from them probably most recently out of anyone I've heard from like code.gov, defense.mil and some other. So there were some states that were doing it as well. So California and New York. And then there were countries around the world that were doing what we were doing with code.gov, kind of mimicking what we were doing uh, Italy, UK, France, Canada. So I do know that in pockets or in places, there are organizations that are still trying to, you know, basically do what we did, which, which is awesome, right? The best form of flattery is someone copying what you did, which is awesome. So there are places out there now in the US program. I don't know exactly. I'm not on the inside anymore and I'm, I'm not sure. I would like to think that. I know there's things like application rationalization where they're trying to account for all their IT software. There's inventory of applications across CIO offices for efficiency, for cost purposes, right? Like, why do we need to buy the same software over and over again? Why don't we buy it once and leverage that across the organization, potentially change the license structure, change the infrastructure model, things like that. But yeah, I don't know of any like specific acquisition things. I was going to say earlier real fast is that... And I don't want this to sound demeaning. It's not the intent, but the federal workforce tends to not be technical. And what I mean by that is that a lot of folks that come into a CIO office, and, and I was like this myself until I started to make some change on it. But like you come from a technical background, I come from software development. I came into the government to do basically project management of software development or software implementation efforts, whether it's proprietary or we were building something or we bought something proprietary and then built some things to add on or customize or do some things that we were doing. Over time, those people, I'm generalizing because I did it myself. Over time, you lose your skill. I'm not writing code anymore. Now I'm just managing to a contract and I'm managing to a project plan. And so I feel like in some sense, that's also where code kind of gets lost. Because the folks with the technical expertise tend to be the ones that are hired. And when you're hired, you're contracted. And so your vested interest is with your employer. And so if you're building code for the government, it's like, oh, that could potentially be IP, intellectual property. So then what do we do with that? Well, we were going to try and sell this thing five times to the government or what. So it's not in the government's interest or understanding. I was sort of hopeful in the government where you had folks like us, you had folks like in GSA, we had a, a program called 18F. Uh, you have the U.S. Digital Service, which is out of the White House as well. We do need some of those folks who potentially compete with industry a little bit, but you need that expertise so that you can become a better buyer. You can understand what you're buying right from a technology standpoint, make sure you're buying what you need and, and actually using it, all that good stuff. So if we have more of those types of folks, but yeah, the government's at a disadvantage, especially when all the open source software is being done by industry. The incentive is for industry to hang on to it. So we haven't mentioned open source much so far because we've been talking a lot about code.gov, which has a lot of open source things to it. Publishing manifest is by definition, almost open source. Maybe it's a big tent open source, but it's part of it. And a question I have for you is 
was there any talk when you were at code.gov about say fiscally supporting open source projects as part of the government's work or trying to understand how much is open source as opposed to proprietary code within those manifests that you were publishing? Yeah, that's a good question. Not so much supporting financially, because I, I get that in industry now too. Like, oh, does your company support open source product? I think it's an awesome idea. We don't that I know of where I sit now at SAS and we didn't at code.gov because we used our money for, we were still always in this arc of, we were still on the upswing of make people aware of the policy, get people using the code from the public and really just letting them even know it's there, right? Like, oh, here's all this code that's out there that the government has produced that is free to use. Please come and contribute, you know, make it better, all that good stuff. So we didn't necessarily support or we didn't at all, actually, because all of our money was spent towards the platform and us trying to get traction within government, but then also with the public as well. That's okay. It's just important to mention because I feel like that's the next step, right? So it's one thing to say, here's what the government uses. The next step is to say, oh, and we should probably help support this if possible, or at least have policies that are lenient towards understanding that maintainers are not right. paid overall for the work that they do. And so if we're all using this code, maybe we should work at, look at that as a security thing. And I know there are governmental efforts now to try and make that better. Things like the Sovereign Tech Fund in Germany is doing that sort of thing. Okay, this is code that's used all across Germany. Let's see mm -hmm. if we can support it to make sure it's better. So I was going to say, you know where that may come into play. So the folks that did it really well were folks like, or agencies were like NASA, Department of Energy and the labs. And I was going to say where that might show up is actually in the labs because they produce a lot of open source projects, software, and then projects, and then they publish. And then what they try and do is hopefully someone else will take it over. So they'll get money and they'll move on to something else, what have you. But they may actually like initially support that externally, financially, what you asked me. So code.gov didn't do it directly, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the energy labs, especially if they're doing something similar. And kind of what leads me there is that was a keynote at like a conference right when I left government. It was it. Energy Lab is, I say a conference, it was more of a meeting. It was a sort of a closed, it wasn't open to the public. It was an energy thing out in New Mexico. So Los Alamos was the closest lab there. And, and that was really the discussion is how do we take these projects and get basically the community to take them over? But initially those projects are funded through the Department of Energy as well. So it's conceivable that they can be giving out money for various projects too. And then the other cool. thing I, that I forgot about earlier that I was going to tell you was when Code.gov was sort of on its last leg, I had reached out to one of the early engineers, Troy Azari, who at the time he was at GitHub, he had left Code.gov and he was a contractor, but he, had, he was in US Digital Service. Then he became a contractor on Code.gov. Then he went to GitHub and now he's somewhere else. But I'd reached out to him, stayed in touch. And I said like, hey, this thing is potentially dying, right? Like it's going to stay there, but no one's going to do anything. And we're passionate about it because we love open source. We put in a lot of effort trying to get public good out there, right? Like this content out there. And I said, what should we do with it? And he goes, why don't you just make it like, see if you can pull it away from the government in some sense and make it like an open source, just an open source project that anyone could manage and what have you. And I was like, I don't know if we can do that. So I never really went down the full path because it was sort of like, can you really do that? And what does that look like? And I don't even know how that discussion would have gone with GSA lawyers and things. I don't even know if they would even understand what I was talking about, <laughs> to be honest. So it never really happened. But that was always a thought, too, is like, get it in public domain, 
it's government funded, but at that point there was no more money. So it wasn't anymore. They owned the domain because government GSA owns the government domain. So the .gov. So your original question in the beginning is how do I get a .gov address? You have to be a government entity and then you have to work with GSA and I don't know, there's some registry and you pay them money and even that's not as transparent as we'd probably <laughs> want to have it. You have to be on the inside to know how to get a .com <laughs> address. But even that, just trying to make it public domain was like, oh, that's such a great idea. I would love to. And then I could work on it from the outside. Like Freud could do it. We could all do it. Right. But it just. And then the other one of the other thoughts we had to if you I always say GitHub because I work closely with them. But one of the other thoughts is there's a GitHub government a site that I used to contribute to all the time. And basically, it's just I would contribute to the list of like, here's the governments around the world or here's the projects around the world, things like that. And one of the other ideas is why not just list all the government source code on something like GitHub government? And that's an open source site. So even though it's GitHub and they have their proprietary stuff that they sell, they had that as an open source site. And I was like, oh, I wonder if we could do that. But I think agencies would be weary about it was hard enough to get them to even publish on code.gov little bit they actually published. So to get them to go public would be a whole nother thing, probably. But they're fun ideas. They're fun ideas. So listeners, right. <laughs> if you're interested, here are some things you can do. Joe, thank you so much for coming on today. We are running up on time. Where can people follow your thoughts on the internet? Of course, my socials, LinkedIn, things like that. Occasionally, I put out some blog posts and things for SaaS. As you mentioned, just did, you know, Fossey this past year did Linux Foundation. So I'm definitely get out, try and get out each year and talk about various topics around open source, probably the major, more major conferences around the country and around the world, if I can. Sweet. And you can yeah. find those links on the show notes. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on. Before you go, Spotlight is the part of the show that we're about to enter. Spotlight's where we highlight people, projects, things that we feel just need some light put on them as a bit of a different mix up from the rest of the show. So my spotlight today is going to be, as I often do, a book I recently read. And I'm going to, you know, it's spotlight a really cool book, like The Forever War by Joe Haldeman about a Vietnam vet going through his like things in sci-fi, The Emperor's Soul by Brandon Sanderson. But I'm actually going to do something else. L.A. Mayer had a really fun series called Bloody Jack about a young girl from London who ends up joining the British Navy. And then I just read a book about her being in the girls' school in Boston in the 1800s. And they're just really quick, silly, fun reads. So if you're looking for a historical fiction for teenagers, highly suggest for planes, L.A. Mayor. That's my spotlight today. Joe, what's yours? That is awesome. I actually opened up my... Here's all my proprietary software. I opened up my iPad and I look at my Kindle software and yeah, I'm going to hit obviously a government person. And so I'm going to give you, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to get political, but just read Westmore's The Work. Westmore is the governor of Maryland currently. I saw him at an event recently, saw him in a mob. I didn't personally speak with it. We're not buds or anything. And then Larry Hogan had a book when he was in office. He was the governor of Maryland as well. So I've been reading that. And then getting away from politics, the last one, government related is called Bridge Builders. So how government can transcend boundaries to solve big problems, which is what we tried to do with code.gov. And that's William Eggers and Don Kettle. Don Kettle is somewhat loosely associated with me based on my dissertation research. One of my committee members and Kadimian, who runs a portion of University of Maryland is they are very close together. And I was like, I think I might write a book about public service. And she said, you should read some of Don's work. And then Don's a great guy. He was at University of Texas. I think he's retired now and writing books, but somewhat geeky, all government related. <laughs> Unfortunately, I need to do something more fun with my life. No, you don't. Sounds like you're exactly where you need to be. 
Thank you so much. Those are great suggestions. And thank you for coming on. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have, there's a few things you can do. One, you can email us and let us know. Email podcast at sustainedoss.org. Two, we can go on the discourse, discourse at sustainedoss.org and just comment and come talk to us. You can also like this podcast, wherever it has been downloaded, sold, or resold to you or whatever you get podcasts. You can also donate on opencollective.com slash sustain OSS. That would be really awesome. We'd love getting donations to keep this work going. Cost money to make podcasts. So that'd be super, super dope. You can also suggest guests or topics that we should talk about. Always have to do that. And you can follow us on Macedon or Blue Sky. Pretty much done with X forever, which is great. And find the episodes, of course, and the show notes. Podcast on sustainedoss.org. Thank you so much, Joe. Have a good day. Good luck with SAS and everything else that's going on. And I hope to see code.gov rise again. Yes, me too. Thank you, Richard. It's been fun as always. Appreciate it. <laughs>